I guess the title of my podcast already gave it away, but my kid's favorite joke is, what does a redneck say before he dies? There's a bar around here that has a sign in it that says, the rules slash what you can't do, colon, anything that begins with, hey guys, watch this, going to be something bad coming after that. I don't know. It's funny when I think about her. She's been around a lot of crazy redneckery for me. I think it's good for kids. I, I'm a lot safer about it than I used to be, I think. But still, it's not unusual for her to see me standing on the edge of the roof with an axe, chopping down the top of a tree or jacking up a boat so I can take the trailer out from under it. And I think it's good. I love doing that kind of stuff. I love doing stuff that requires a certain amount of risk and a kind of physicality and a kind of uh, understanding of physics and engineering that is applied in a maybe unconventional, though practical way, you know? I mean, I come from people who had to get things done. Sometimes you've got to tie off to a chimney while you hang over the side of the house and tack on a piece of fascia or something. I don't know. I don't know where the line is. You know, we didn't all make it is the is the bare fact. And I don't know that I want her water skiing in an irrigation ditch behind a Jeep or anything that involves guns or motorcycles. But doing some other kind of crazy stuff, I think is probably good. And getting hurt a little bit is good. I, I guess the problem is you can't control it, right? You know, the kids have to wear life jackets now, and, and I wear them too. We wear them. It's a new thing for me, but, you know, we have the inflatable kind. They're a lot more comfortable. They're not as hot as the old horseshoe collar kind. You hardly notice you have them on. They're not that big a deal. So anyway, we, we wear them. Kids wear them. Anyway, one time we were out sailing. My buddy was messing around with his inflatable life jacket, you know, Anyway, he was reading this cartridge on his Mustang inflatable jacket. You know, they're they're lighter, they're smaller, they're easier to wear, they have a built-in harness. They're really pretty great. And he was reading the, the cartridge in it, and he noticed it was expired. He's like, I better get a new cartridge for this. And so we're like, you know, okay, whatever. Um, you need a new cartridge. And we're sitting there, we're anchored. And so he, he kind of looks around, says to my daughter, he says, I hope this isn't going to be a moment for your favorite joke. So he buckles the thing up, he climbs up into the rig of the boat, I don't know, 15, 20 feet up. He jumps in, he goes way underwater, and for a minute we're looking at him, we're thinking, well, I guess it didn't work. And then he comes rocketing to the surface, shoots out of the water like that coffin into the end of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which is a Moby Dick reference, by the way. He settles back in, he's floating around he says well I guess these things work I also thought he was injured but I think he hit it pretty well it's pretty awesome we noticed that they worked you might be uh, immersed in the water for a minute but then you'll come rocketing to the surface like Queequeg's coffin I always kept her away from working on my old trucks and the hot rod stuff even though she was kind of into it and we kind of did more boat stuff I've been thinking about back in, I think, 2008. I think that's when we had those 
first time we had these fires that seem regular now and it was so smoky like it has been for the last couple of weeks and seemed like it was that way for most of the summer that year anyway you know we couldn't go outside for weeks on end and she was I don't know she was little I guess she would have only been three or four at the time we decided we were going to build a boat in the living room like my grandfather building we're ready in the living room of his house and getting it stuck in there I put down some plastic and then some plastic tarps then some canvas drop cloths I'm much safer about my redneckery now as I've said but um Put it down in the living room. It's a technique I learned from one of my buddies who's a, a painter, an artist painter, as they say, you know. And anyway, we built a dinghy in the in the living room. I'd cut out, I'd go outside to cut out the pieces and fit, you know, try to fit them and then come back in. And, and then I would I would apply the epoxy and things if I needed to inside when she was at her mom's house and try to air out the house, though it wasn't easy. It was kind of fun, though. Anyway, that, we still have that dinghy. I mean, we, we don't. It was it was built on the cheap out of leftover junk, and, uh, and we started replacing parts of it, and then I finally just used it as a, as a mold to replace the whole thing, so I guess it's a new boat. You know, it's the, it's the Delphic boat. Do you know about the Delphic boat? It's a... A riddle that comes from the oracle in Delphi and the Delphic boat asks the question of if you build a a boat and then through maintenance and repair you start replacing it when does it become a new boat and um, I don't know if there's an answer to it there's a legal answer the legal answer is if you dismantle it even if you use old parts like ballast and fittings, then it's a new boat. But if you don't dismantle it, then it's not. So I guess the dinghy we have now is a is a new boat, not a continuation of the old one. It's been a good one, though. We got a lot of hard use out of it, and it keeps chugging along. You've probably seen it on my Instagram if you, if you watch that. I think I use it more than I use my sailboat or any of my other boats. I've told you about what my wife calls the feral man camp on the other side of the marina from us i guess i'm just staying in training in case i have the blessed opportunity to join those exalted philosophers in their pursuits and endeavors i don't know why that kind of redneckery appeals to me i think i just want to continue to be the kind of person who does stuff and i you know, I'm an academic now, so I don't do stuff in my daily life like I did when I did farm work or when I did construction work. It's been a long time since I've done that kind of stuff. And so it's just, I think uh, moving heavy objects and applying force to things is just something so elemental to me that I that I kind of need to keep doing it. And I think also I need to not lose my um, uh, my risk tolerance. When you do that kind of work, you're habituated to a certain kind of risk, and, and I think that that's good. I think that it makes you more inclined to take other kinds of meaningful risks, like social, emotional, 
artistic risks. So I, I love seeing that kind of redneckery and participating in it. There's an old um, like village blacksmith tradition. As some of you know, I've been fascinated with blacksmithing lately. I don't think I'm going to take it up. I certainly don't have room for it. I don't even have room for my woodworking and guitar making and boat building. But um, there's a tradition where the village blacksmith um, on 4th of July does something called shooting the anvil. They usually do it by burying one anvil upside down and then taking an, another anvil with a similar footprint and putting it on top. Uh, the anvils have uh, usually in their casting, they have a little bit of a dent in the bottom of the foot. It's kind of like a Japanese chisel that has a hollow behind the, the blade. It's so that it can be leveled more easily so that you don't have to level this huge area to put it down on its mating surface. And because it's leveled, the other anvil of similar footprint can go on top of it and it has this cavity in there and they fill that cavity with black powder and they stick a cannon fuse inside there. They get the fastest one of them, which I don't know who that is now because most blacksmiths are old. And uh, someone lights it, runs away, and the thing goes a couple hundred feet up in the air and everybody cheers. It buries itself deep in the ground. They dig it out with a tractor in the old days. I guess they probably got out some picks and pry bars and shovels and stuff and dug it out of there with good old-fashioned, old-fashioned mechanical advantage. I love that stuff. I love shooting the anvil. I love a bowling ball cannon. I love a, a pumpkin trebuchet. You know, they have those pumpkin hurling contests. I think this is the way we learn about physics. I'm not entirely joking either, you know. Though they're becoming more rare, I know, or, or at least knew. Some of them are gone now. A lot of farmers, mechanics, welders, who were really good engineers. They really knew a lot about practical engineering, and they designed stuff, not just that was useful like on their farms or in their businesses, but often they develop products and put them out into the world. They learn that sort of thing, I think, in large part through just doing things, some of which had no point at all but to be amusing. Hey, what happens if we do this? Let's build a catapult to throw a piano. It'll make a brilliant sound. You know, they're thinking... We got this piano, we got all this junk, we got all this time on our hands. I think, you know, a lot of this stuff is connected to in farming, um, and not just in farming, but in farming communities, if you're in the adjacent um, industries, uh, there's a down season. And during that down season, uh, you know, it's a time to just kill time or screw around or whatever, but it also is a time to express some creativity in a way that might be productive in the long run, ultimately. I think it's what I appreciate about my teaching life, uh, that I have a down season, and I make stuff during the down season, and I do physical work, and I stay connected to that. And, and frankly, I think it makes me a better teacher, or at least it keeps me sane and ready to go back in the classroom. But I also think that my students appreciate some of these stories and I hope it makes me a more relatable human being to them than somebody who just is locked up with these books that are going to take them years and years to read and master. 
There's an interesting poem called Cartoon Physics. Cartoon Physics are like the rules of cartoons, I guess. You know, like, like uh, you know, some of it's explained in the in the poem by Nick Flynn. Uh, he's got a, a memoir called Another BS Night in Suck City. That's, that's that's kind of funny too. But he he says, for instance, I'm describing the child in cartoon physics. He says she will learn that if a man runs off the edge of a cliff, he will not fall until he notices his mistake. So that's sort of like the the wily e. coyote thing. The poem begins: Children under say ten shouldn't know that the universe is ever expanding, inexorably pushing into the vacuum, galaxies swallowed by galaxies, whole solar systems collapsing. All of it acted out in silence. At 10, we are still learning the rules of cartoon animation. And he describes a lot of things that are sort of Tom and Jerry, Wiley Coyote-ish. I remember my kid loved Tom and Jerry, and I just, when I would watch it, I don't know, like we would, we used to get these cheap CDs, you know. We'd go to the video store, not CDs, I'm sorry, DVDs. We'd go to the video store and they'd have like, Two dollars, like four hours of Tom and Jerry cartoons. So we'd watch that. She loved it. I'm like, man, it's so violent. But anyway, you'd see all the rules, like you know, they you paint a door on a on a wall and then or on a you know rock, and then one person could open it and go through, and the other person couldn't, and you would know that ahead of time, you know. But the interesting things thing about cartoon physics. Um, and why young people shouldn't quite know the hard rules of science. Yet, Nick Flynn asserts that it's because when the uh, physical experiments are, are connected to play, right, that students can still run into a burning house, sinking ships, and light on lifeboats the trucks will come and the ladders if you jump you will be saved a child places her hand on the roof of the school bus and drives across the city of sand she knows at the exact spot it will skid at which point the bridge will give who will swim to safety who will be pulled under by sharks and in this world of cartoon physics the child can still be a hero you know arenas where they can be heroes is what the poem says. Flynn talks about how that kind of play with this kind of low stakes failure and also low stakes success um, is an arena in which you learn to be a hero, where you learn how to do other things, where you learn how to do real things, where you learn how to accomplish the significant things in your life. Maybe possibly if you can learn that you can build a boat in your living room just for the heck of it or if you can build a machine to shoot a bowling ball into a cornfield for no reason at all then you might be able to learn that you can do just about anything and there's also something interesting about connecting your body to that. You can physically feel that success. You can feel, you know, the exact spot it will skid 
at which point the bridge will give, you can kind of internalize these principles of physics, of real physics, in your body in a way that you'll cultivate a certain set of experiences that can guide you to doing the right thing physically as well as intellectually or conceptually when you get older. I think that that's brilliant. I hope, I hope we haven't um, destroyed our sense of play because play is where this gets. And when we're thinking and talking about jumping out of the rig of the boat to test your life jacket or doing this other kind of stuff, I, I mean, ultimately what we're talking about there is that's play. To continue to play as an adult is to, in some ways, continue to have a kind of childlike joy that I think is really, really important. I hope kids are getting this. I worry about it a lot because, you know, my kid's sitting in the other room doing online education right now. There's a book from 2005 called Last Child in the Woods, and it outlines what the author is calling nature deficit disorder. It's interesting. I remember reading it at the time, or maybe when it came out, you know, when my daughter was little and 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 being concerned about it and, and, and taking it seriously and trying hard to make sure that she was exposed to going outdoors and getting dirty and, you know, screwing around in boats and playing in the creek. We used to go out in the creek by our house and take our gold pans. She used to call it pot golding. What do you want to do? Let's go pot golding. And we'd go out there and never find any gold, but we'd find iron and we could talk about science and things. And I thought I, I thought that was productive. I don't know. I mean, I think there are probably other ways for kids to get this experience, and I hope they are. But right now they're getting a heck of a lot of experience from uh, staring into a screen, and I am too. And I've been trapped inside with this smoke lately, and not being able to go outside has been the hardest part of this and going outside has been pretty important. When I was a kid, you could do anything in the world as long as it was outside. We could kill each other outside. Go outside. That's what we learned. So I don't know. I, I am weary of things that start with, hey guys, watch this, because that often precedes at least a trip to the hospital. But there's got to be some sort of point at which that is moderated um, by a need to sort of do something physical, something experimental, and something that's connected to this idea of play. So maybe we could modify that and move away from the, hey guys, watch this, but still say go outside. And I love that term. It's a jazz musician's term too. It's when you get outside. It's when you get outside of the of the scale that's supposed to go with the chords you're playing against. You're in, sort of inventing your own harmony, melody, relationship as you go. Think about artists who go outside. There's a, a composer I'm interested in named Harry Parch. He calls himself in a, in a, in a memoir or somewhere. It's connected to his name often. Um, the little boy who went outside. He invented his own musical system and he combined his interest in language his interest in objects, his interest in music by creating his own musical language and then building 
himself by hand all of the musical instruments, or many of the musical instruments to play them. Some of them he used uh, sort of traditional musical instruments, but just tuned differently. Created his own musical system and his own musical universe out of them with a with his own scales and his own set of harm, uh, harmonic devices and contrivances. That was pretty cool. So anyway, be leery of, hey guys, watch this. But never be afraid to go outside. Thanks, friends. See you next week.